to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temme, and I'm joined by Vedahi Mehta. Hello. Hi, I am your baby host. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, we yeah, we haven't been on a on an episode together in a little bit. This is because you were uh, gone for a bit. Were you ecstatic to hear that you successfully dodged another sports ball episode? <laughs> I was, although the the sports gambling thing is a pretty interesting issue. But yeah, I was I was happy to avoid being kind of dead weight like I have been on other sports related episodes. I was that dead weight for you, though. I thought it was interesting, <laughs> even for people like me who have zero interest in fantasy football. But speaking of gambling, how was your vacation? I hear you were in Vegas. <laughs> I was in Vegas, but I did absolutely zero gambling and really nothing all that interesting, which for me was really nice. But I know probably means I had like what a lot of people would consider a boring Vegas trip, but I had a great time. Well, I will also coincidentally be going to Vegas because apparently that's a whole bandwagon. Everyone's going there these days. Um, I'll be going there this weekend. Um, Nice. For the first time in my adult life, which is just to say for the first time, I have a chip on my shoulder, I think, because when I was like, a young warthog, my darling parents who neither gambled nor drank nor ate meat nor had a ton of disposable income decided that Sin City sounded like a wholesome and affordable destination for a family trip with their young daughter. I legitimately do not know what there was to do except like eat one third of the options at buffets. But anyway, I feel like I have a lot to make up for. So (laughs) you do. There's a lot of great food there. I can tell you that. Yeah, so we're very excited to be joined today by Sierra McWilliams. Hi, Sierra. Hello. Sierra is an assistant attorney general for the state of Washington, advising state agency clients at the Washington Departments of Health and Agriculture on issues surrounding medical marijuana and hemp. She is also one of the contributing authors of the brand new Cannabis Law Desk Book published by Thomson Reuters. We're very excited to have Sierra on the show for several reasons. Vedahi, do you want to fill the folks in? Um, yeah, so uh, Sierra is a, is a friend of mine, and I'm really excited to have her. Um, and she works with a lot of things, including cannabis, which is a really hot topic these days because for a while, but especially in 2021 more than ever, the cannabis markets reflect a multi-billion dollar industry. And that operates within a patchwork system of state and local laws with all these federalism implications in play. So despite federal prohibition of cannabis, states like Sierra's in Washington have been at the forefront of experimenting with adult use, aka recreational and medical cannabis programs. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. I feel like a a longtime listener, first time caller situation. (laughs) That's so awesome. Thanks for your support, Sierra. (laughs) I'm particularly excited to be here to talk about cannabis law, which has been part of my life for, I guess, the last five or six years now. Just a a disclaimer, uh, I am an assistant attorney general for the state of Washington, but any opinions or facts that I proffer are in my individual capacity and not in my employment capacity. Very good. Check that lawyer box. Yeah. (laughs) I always tell people that's half of being a lawyer is just covering our you know what's. (laughs) So before we dive into the really fun stuff, let's talk about the book. What can those practicing in the area of cannabis law expect from this book? So anytime I am asked to talk about something that I helped put together or do, I kind of turn into Ron Swanson. Oh, no. And my instinct is to be like, there is a cannabis law desk book. (laughs) It is my understanding that it is a good desk book. Many smart people contributed to it, and I was also there. Sierra eats too much humble pie. This is so great. 
but those are my instincts. But seriously, the, the origin of this desk book was because the Attorney General Alliance, which is, you know, just kind of a national association of assistant attorneys general, has a bunch of different interest groups where people from different states who kind of work in the same practice area get together to talk and share ideas. And one of those practice groups is cannabis law. Cannabis law is still so new uh, that it's kind of a black hole of precedent. That's what we do as attorneys usually is we're just like, okay, so what is the precedent? What are the different steps that led up to this legal question? And so how does that evolution answer the question that we have right now? But, you know, cannabis has been illegal for <laughs> decades. Of course. Degrees. So we had this group of people who are like, okay, what are you guys doing? <laughs> you know, like, if you, have you ever watched the Great British Baking Show? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, during the technical, when everybody like looks down at their list of like three instructions and then they look up and they look around at what everybody else is doing at their workstation. That's that's kind of what. Yeah. Every time a state legislature passes a uh, recreational marijuana bill, you know, they poke their head up and they're like, oh, no. How did you guys deal with this? How did you throw together a regulatory system for what used to be? a Schedule 1 drug and still is a federally classified as a Schedule 1 controlled substance, but our state has decided to allow people to recreationally grow, sell, buy, and consume it. And there was kind of a dearth of material, you know, for reference. There's a lot of stuff out there. You know, there are people who've been passionate about cannabis for years and decades, and they do their best to, like, put stuff out online, but you don't know quality control-wise whether you can depend on the information. You don't know how often it's updated. And a lot of it is from kind of a grassroots and producer level rather than from the perspective of people who are required to regulate systems from a governmental perspective. So that's impetus for it. Um, and we had a couple of people who threw a lot of energy into getting dozens and dozens of people involved in drafting the desk book. I worked on the advertising chapter, kind of addressing the case law regarding regulation of commercial speech and how that applies to uh, marijuana advertising and cannabis advertising. And then I also contributed to the chapter on hemp and hemp derived products and CBD products. And I learned so much. You know, it's, it's funny how you can think that you know a lot about a subject because you've worked in it for years and then some you have to write down what you know and you you learn so much so it was a really great experience yeah and i'm i'm really glad that um we have you on as a an, as a representative sort of from washington because washington was of course one of the first two states to legalize recreational marijuana right back in 2012 mm -hmm. um along with colorado and so you guys have at least maybe had the most practice with it about the most time with it i hope yeah uh, well, well washington was one of the first to legalize medical as well in 1998 oh wow we've had some form of medical cannabis for over 20 years the desk book covers a super wide range of topics from history to navigating federal and state conflicts, public health, um, licensing, and all kinds of other stuff. And for those interested, we'll link the desk book in the episode notes. And so, Sierra, you mentioned that you worked in a number of different cannabis things. Tell us what's going on in the wide world of weed. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, wide world of weed just made me laugh like it's a really strange cable network. <laughs> <laughs> or an alternate internet, yeah. Ooh, yeah, that sounds a lot more fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like the silver, what's it called, Silk Road? Yeah. Where you can buy your weed. Yep. 
But what's going on <laughs> in cannabis land? Uh, a lot. There's always a lot going on. Um, first of all, uh, we're moving towards consistently calling cannabis, cannabis, uh, mm -hmm. which may sound like a very pedantic thing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that that's kind of a recent development. A lot of states are passing bills to kind of unify the term cannabis rather than the use of marijuana or like the federal government does marijuana. You know, marijuana with the H. <laughs> well, they spelled it they with, an spelled H. with an H right, in, in the in Federal the Controlled Substances Act. Oh my gosh, I, what year is it? And I, I am just wondering if they, because it's like it's like a Spanish. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I think like someone just like yep. dictated it yeah. wrong yeah. and it stuck. Yeah, they heard the H, they wrote the H, and now we have that in our federal statutes. Yep. Right. And marijuana is almost a misnomer in itself, isn't it? Well, fun fact, we're finally acknowledging and <laughs> kind of addressing the fact that it's racist. Oh. Yes. You know, this this isn't like hidden knowledge in any way, but the origins of, you know, marijuana eventually being placed on the Controlled Substances Act as a Schedule One drug, which the, the qualifications for that are that it is a drug subject to abuse for which there is no medical purpose. Oh. And it has been classified in that way since 1970. But kind of the anti-immigrant kind of racist roots of the demonization of marijuana goes back to the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. When uh, post-1910, the Mexican Revolution um, there was an influx of immigration into the West and the Southern states, which led to kind of rebranding of cannabis as marijuana, you know, kind of terming it as this invasive uh, Mexican drug that was being carried over the border when really before that most cannabis was imported from India mm -hmm. or grown in the United States. It was called cannabis. It was sold as a drug. You know, there were popular hashish parlors in New York City. Yeah. You know, it was common. It was widespread. Mm -hmm. But it was one way for individual states one by one to take action. Uh, There's that movie in the 1930s, Reefer Madness. Mm -hmm. Oh, the musical. Yeah. 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 I love that. Oh, yep, yeah. Very familiar. Yeah. Well, actually, I think we're talking about two different things. <laughs> I think it was a movie first and then a musical. Oh, yes. really? Okay. So then I haven't yeah. seen the non-musical. Yeah. I've seen the production. <laughs> <laughs> But um, so we're, we're kind of slowly realizing that, you know, cannabis was rebranded that way for specific purposes. Mm -hmm. And then also when we separate out the plant cannabis, cannabis sativa into marijuana and hemp, it makes it sound like they're two very distinct things when really they're just different varietals that have been carefully bred to either have higher amounts of tetrahydrocannabinol or THC or lower amounts of tetrahydrocannabinol. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've been confused about this for a while too. So like what exactly is hemp, right? I think it's the same plant that we get marijuana from, cannabis. I think they're two different plants, but they're both cannabis plants, right? So people are often very confused about that. More and more we're realizing, you know, traditionally people are like, well, there's cannabis sativa and cannabis uh, indica, mm -hmm. right? But really, the cannabis plant is the cannabis plant. Mm -hmm. It's um, a cultivar. Okay. A particular, you know, subtype mm -hmm. of marijuana that's been bred to have certain characteristics and certain cannabinoids more than other cannabinoids. Oh, so sativa, indica are all, they're not different species, they're all the same species. They're, they're different varietals that grow in different areas of the world and they have different kind of phenotypes. 
where like maybe one is taller and darker, one is shorter mm-hmm. and lighter colored. Mm-hmm. But more and more uh, researchers, as they're finally being allowed to do research, are like, you know what, we can't be binary about this. You know, there are so many different effects that come from this plant and so many different subtypes of this plant. We can't just look at it as one thing or the other. This is all cannabis. Mm -hmm. And you have to look at each individual varietal for for what it is and what it's intended to do. Yeah, I actually read an interesting study about that where they were basically finding that genetically the all of these were basically the same so even though like sativas are known for the mind high whereas indica is associated with body high the body high yeah what does that mean right yeah yeah, what exactly does that mean (laughs) uh who knows um (laughs) but yeah the the study was really interesting because it compared these different strains that were advertised as one thing and actually they were genetically closer to something completely different exactly yeah it's really interesting So same plants and in marijuana comes from same plant, right? And they just have are they different? Yeah, parts of the so same we're kind of getting down. Like why do they have different the THC legal definition? Sure. Which at the federal level, you know, the legal yeah. definition of marijuana since 1970 has been all parts of the cannabis plant, whether it's growing or not, the seeds, the resin extracted from the plant, and any kind of compound. Whereas you still have things like, like you can buy hemp milk and hemp seeds, especially if you live in Portland. Mm -hmm. uh, I have hemp oil for my dog. There's hemp (laughs) products all over the place. So, Yeah, yeah. Is it it like CBD oil? Does it like relax him? So yeah, that's, then that's further confusing. Mm -hmm. Like how Mm -hmm. is our hemp products different um, from CBD The definition of marijuana is any cannabis containing more than 0.3% THC, um, all parts of the plant. So in the past, this definition specifically exempted sterilized seeds, um, oil made from the seeds, uh, mature stalks. So there was a lot of plant products or like hemp products that were imported into the country, but it was still illegal to grow hemp in the United States because basically mm-hmm. any cannabis grown in the U.S. was, you know, illegal marijuana. Yeah. So it didn't really matter. If it was low THC plants. You can import the mature, like, fiber. Okay. You can import sterilized seed, mm-hmm. but you couldn't grow hemp in the United States until recently. So is the low THC content naturally in the plant, or is it a product of how they extract it and like process it? So the definition of hemp now, since 2018 is uh, any part of the cannabis plant that is less than 0.3% THC. Okay. So that's the only difference. That's the only marker. It's a plant that has been bred, that has been cultivated to have less than 0.3% THC. Okay. So, and that 0.3%, is that like an arbitrary legal marker, but based on some kind of medical suggestion that like we go crazy after 0.3% in our bodies or something? (laughs) We go crazy. Baby, I knew... I knew that you would jump on that. I knew that you had the kind of mind that would be like, where did that come from? I hate arbitrariness. Mm-hmm. You know me. It is. 
I, I looked into this. I tried to find what the origin was of the 0.3% because I work with my state's hemp program and hemp farmers who are licensed to grow hemp now have said, why is it 0.3% THC? Mm-hmm. Like you could go so much higher and still not have any impairing effects. Like it would still be hemp like. Okay. And so I looked, I tried to find where that came from. The best answer I could find was that one Canadian researcher at one point had to arbitrarily set a line for the purposes of an experiment that they were doing. Oh, wow. And that number just like perpetuated. It just stuck. That's interesting. Uh-huh. Kind of like the H in the word. Yeah. <laughs> and now we're stuck with it. Well, we wrote it down. We can't change Things it. Things get enshrined. Come on, guys. <laughs> okay. So it's not like you could go well over 0.3% THC and not have these effects. Well, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist. I'm just a lawyer. <laughs> a lowly lawyer. <laughs> but I have, I have anecdotally heard that it's a very conservative number. So then we know like marijuana or... Th- you mean marijuana? Marijuana. Well, yeah, I was, I was going to ask, is hemp a controlled substance? Yeah, so... Traditionally, hemp has been a controlled substance when marijuana was listed in Schedule 1. Again, in 1970, the definition encompassed hemp, uh, which is fascinating because our country has a long history with hemp. You know, people like to say that George Washington was a hemp grower. (laughs) I have heard that. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, but the, the definition was very inclusive. THC itself was listed within the definition of marijuana. So anything containing THC was marijuana. And so hemp does have some amount of THC in it. So it was prohibited. And it has more CBD than whatever marijuana is, right? It depends. Every single strain of varietal can be different. Okay. Generally, yeah, generally nowadays, if you're growing hemp, you do want to encourage a higher CBD level in your plant. Mm -hmm. uh, Because CBD itself is a pretty hot product for extraction. But not really regulated. So it doesn't really matter for the legal definition. Oh, gosh, Fadehi, you're asking all the tough questions. Ha, you are on one today. Feel free to be like, no, we can't get into that right now. I mean, yeah, we can always. Yeah, if we're going to get two in the weeds, we can just two in the weed. (laughs) All right. (laughs) She's on something. (laughs) Let me let me do. Let me do just like a little thumbnail sketch of the legality. Yeah, go for it. So, you know, for the longest time, hemp was illegal to grow in the United States. Some bits and pieces of it could be imported and sold until finally, after, you know, several years of legal recreational marijuana, um, people were like, why aren't we allowed to grow hemp? Like, what's what's the issue here? So the federal government in 2014, as part of the Agricultural Improvement Act of that year, kind of colloquially known as the Farm Bill, um, created a pilot program hmm. for states to grow hemp. And it was very vestigial. You can only grow it if you're like a university or a state department of agriculture. There's nothing about whether you could sell it after you grew it. It it was, it was difficult. But in 2018, uh, in the farm bill, the uh, federal government created a structure for people to grow hemp as long as they were licensed by either the state or the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So over the last couple of years, Many states and tribes uh, have been putting together individualized hemp licensing programs and people have been growing hemp, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, is just defined as cannabis with less than 0.3% THC. So now that it is federally legal, um, it has been removed from the Controlled Substances Act. It's led to a lot of kind of interesting issues. Yeah. So uh, what 
legal snags have there been since then? So since then, um, the first kind of legal snag was, you know, everybody's so excited, hemp is legal now, we'll do anything with it that we want. Party! And then the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, is like, no, you can't. A <laughs> uh, bunch of party poopers every time. Party poopers. <laughs> I think really the first conflict was the FDA came out and said, um, you can't use hemp or CBD as a food additive for humans. Does that include edibles or? Well, that depends. Oh, geez. Why do I even ask? Uh, so so you, no, g- generally when you say edibles, usually what you're saying is a food item that's been infused with THC. Sure. And those would be within uh, state uh, medical or recreational marijuana licenses. Okay. Mm-hmm. So those, like, marijuana is still illegal uh, mm-hmm. at the federal level. You know, individual states have just decided to allow its growth, sale, production, consumption inside their individual states. Right. Yeah, and that gets, and that's because the federal, like Congress or whatever, the federal government only has so much control. So mm-hmm. they'll use like interstate commerce mm-hmm. as a reason to like reach down into state jurisdiction, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So as long as it's within a state, that's why states have some control over it. If it doesn't cross straight lines. Which is a huge reversal from prior Commerce Clause law. Um, for example, like the, the original the yeah. farmer growing wheat on his own farm, Wickard v. Filburn. Do you remember that case? Right. Absolutely. From first year of law school. Well, uh, his deal was he grew wheat on his own farm to feed his own animals. Mm-hmm. But he grew too much wheat, like more than quotas that people were allowed to grow. And so they find him. Exactly. And he's like, how can the federal government find me for something I'm doing on my own farm? Yeah. This is the opposite of interstate commerce. And the Supreme Court was like, no, it could implicate interstate <laughs> commerce if a whole bunch of farmers do this. It could affect the flow of commerce. Mm-hmm. That was upheld in another Supreme Court case in the early 2000s, specifically regarding medical marijuana, Gonzalez v. Raich. Uh, in that case, California, you know, an individual in California was like, I grow medical marijuana in my own home. I consume it in my own home. How can you um, subject me to criminal, like federal criminal penalties? Right. It's one thing to do at the state level. Yeah. Yeah. And the Supreme Court was like, no, because you growing your own marijuana, you know, can uh, implicate the illicit black market, which is interstate. (laughs) Because you have the potential to sell it to people in other states, we're going to preemptively take jurisdiction, which Uh is silly. Right. So our current, you know, patchwork of states with uh, medical or recreational marijuana laws is really just existing because the federal government has decided not to make a big deal about it. In terms of enforcement. Correct. But they could if they wanted to. They could be bigger jerks than they are, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I don't think that the will is there, though, or the resources. You yeah. know, a, a highly regulated market is preferable to, mm-hmm. you know, a rampant black market in most cases. So... The FDA said you can't sell hemp or CBD as a food. And the reason for that is that uh, you can't sell something as a food. Like it can't be considered a food if it is, unless it is like generally recognized as safe, right? Mm-hmm. 
The issue with that is that, um, you know, hemp has been used as a food for humans for years and centuries and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't matter because in the FDA's uh, position is that because there is a current drug that has been approved as a drug that is related to hemp or CBD, then it can't be considered a food, basically. That's an abbreviation, like, that really distills down a bunch of stuff. But um, Epidiolex is basically just CBD uh, isolate that is used as a drug to treat people with severe seizures. Oh, wow. Such as Dravet syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, well, this is an approved drug, um, which means that, you know, you can't. Oh, it can't be both. Yeah. That's the issue. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. That's awfully nitpicky. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Who's trying to sell it as food, though? Oh, my goodness. Do you know what microgreens are? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. How can I live in the Pacific Northwest and not know? Of course. (laughs) Uh, hemp microgreens are pretty popular. Okay. Um, and then also CBD extracted from hemp. You know, I think that the craze is kind of dying out a little bit, but for a while there's CBD lattes, mm-hmm. you know, were such a popular thing. Green lattes. Oh, we still have CBD sodas all yeah. around. Portland. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. But I, so, so that counts as food and that doesn't oh. count as a CBD product. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Because it's been added to food. So, so, so places are selling it as foods. Um, yes. Successfully enough. Um, mm-hmm. But there was some federal pushback about that. Yeah. Every once in a while, the FDA sends out letters to people and tells them to stop. <laughs> you better knock it off. <laughs> and says, you guys, this is still illegal. You know, it's still our interpretation that you're not allowed to do this. And Oregon's just like, we don't care. Yeah. Um, some states have literally just said, we don't care. Colorado actually like passed a law saying we've decided that this is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, one of the things that we brought up a couple of minutes ago is when we start crossing state lines is where we start to run in a lot of run into a lot of issues with this. My understanding is that there's some issues with transporting uh, hemp and hemp related products. So once people started actually growing hemp, they ran into the issue of interstate commerce. Right. Mm hmm. It's just so natural in our country to grow in one state and then ship it out somewhere else for processing or sale. The first real test of the federal government's um, decision that that hemp is legal in all 50 states, um, not a scheduled drug at all, kind of came with the Big Sky Scientific case. Uh, So in that one, in January of 2019, a truck full of uh, hemp uh, was traveling through the state of Idaho and they were stopped by an Idaho state police officer who smelled all of the very <laughs> cannabinoid terpenes <laughs> wafting off of the back of that truck and looked at the massive amounts of cannabis that was on this truck mm-hmm. and immediately uh, all of that cannabis. Okay. Um, and the driver was arrested for, for marijuana trafficking. Instead of for hemp traffic. Correct. Yes. The state patrol did eventually uh, test the plant material and conceded that none of the cannabis exceeded the 0.3% THC mm-hmm. level at which it is you know, legal um, in the United States. And Big Sky Scientific tried to recover their cannabis. So they tried to get a court to order the state patrol to release it back to them. However, the court decided that uh, Idaho did have the right to ban uh, hemp from crossing the state line into Idaho. 
which was a surprise, I think. Nobody really expected that um, outcome. Uh, after this, uh, general counsel for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, kind of passive aggressively, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> issued a legal memorandum <laughs> that said, so that's actually not okay. <laughs> that's not the law. You know, and it pointed to a, a different case um, that found differently on the interstate uh, tr- transport of hemp, finding that, you know, the Commerce Clause does trump individual states' abilities to ban transport of hemp. Oh, so it's like the opposite of yeah. what we've been seeing with, mm-hmm. with marijuana. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So marijuana is still federally illegal. So it can't cross state lines uh, without mm-hmm. you know, legal ramifications. But hemp is legal federally. Um, so individual states, they can you know, regulate what is permitted in their state, but they can't stop it from passing through. Ooh, that's kind of a fun win. Yeah, yeah. And ironically, Idaho mm-hmm. just uh, got yeah. their hemp licensing plan approved last week. Oh, wow. So now they're growing hemp in Idaho, too. Finally. Yeah. I'm glad we were a good influence. Yeah, better better late than never, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's just one of those situations where there's always these growing pains. No pun intended. When people have to switch their regulatory mindset mm-hmm. from one reality to immediately a completely different reality, you know, one reality one day, this is a schedule one controlled substance. And then, you know, Congress takes an action and delists it. And suddenly it's not even a drug, you know? Yeah. 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 It reminds me of something that one of the other writers here at Fine Law recently covered. There was a, a situation in Kansas where early, earlier this year, a county sheriff seized a cash transport van carrying like $166,000 in cash from a medical marijuana dispensary in Missouri where medical marijuana is legal. And then the U.S. Attorney's Office in Kansas brought a civil forfeiture action to take this cash, arguing that it was generated by sales that violated the Federal Controlled Substances Act. But it was just, it was this whole thing where it's like, okay, but for so long you didn't care. And now nobody really knows if you care. And um, right. It's not the out? actual. Yeah, it, it was cash from this this dispensary. Yeah, it, it all gets very dicey very fast. Yeah, that's fascinating. Also, I don't know, but we can. Um, uh, I don't remember, but we can link Richard's article of, in the show notes. Uh, the transportation issues here. I feel like I haven't made it really clear that kind of the issue with transportation um, was that in the farm bill where the uh, states, uh, the oh, sorry, the U.S. Department of Agriculture was given the authority to create a licensed hemp structure um, that could be run either by states or by the USDA, the federal government explicitly stated that states could not ban the interstate transport of hemp. So that was explicit. Um, And so, but the the thing is, like, do they have the authority to say that states can't ban the interstate transport of hemp or 10th Amendment? Do we shake our fists, say the 10th Amendment protects us? We do whatever we want within our state borders, right? Oh, geez. Right. And so the answer to that question is, yes, yeah. the Commerce Clause gives them the authority to say that yeah. these goods are allowed to move in interstate commerce, or at least through the state in interstate commerce. You can't block your borders. Mm-hmm. And so this arose as an issue again when, okay. and this was a big surprise to regulators because, um, you know, they aren't necessarily steeped in the world of cannabis. 
I know. We all, some of them. And honestly, like, it's a big help that they are because they have some contacts. Some of them might be. <laughs> but, you know, I think a lot of regulators were kind of surprised by how popular smokable hemp was mm-hmm. as a sale product. Mm-hmm. It's basically just dried uh, hemp flour matter mm-hmm. that is rolled into a cigarette or a joint and you smoke it. And people smoke it for the same reasons that you would ingest hemp microgreens or CBD mm-hmm. oil. It's for the uh, beneficial effects that they're hoping to get from it. Several states were like, wait, 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 wait. We don't want people smoking <laughs> something else. We just like worked so hard for so many decades. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, especially the states that don't have didn't have at the time any kind of uh, legal marijuana. They're like, how are we supposed to tell the difference? You know, it was it was a law enforcement argument, which is kind of how hemp got rolled up initially in the definition of marijuana. It's just so difficult to tell the difference with the naked eye. Yeah. Like that dude in Idaho pulled that truck over because he thought it was marijuana. I mean, exactly. So I can see that, like, as much as I hate to concede this, it's a fair point if you have a difficult time for law enforcement officers to tell the difference between what's legal and what's Mm -hmm. not. But, you know, individuals who wanted to buy this product or sell this product and the federal government were like, but it's legal. We explicitly said this is, you know, the hemp in just dried form is a legal substance. And so individual states started banning smokable hemp in various different ways, you know, different types of uh, wording in their bills. But in several of those states, including um, Texas, that uh, law was challenged. Um, Suit was brought against the state and the court held that the health agency that promulgated the law banning smokable hemp had exceeded its statutory authority because the law was broad enough that it made it so you couldn't have smokable hemp in the state at all. So the court was basically like, you can say that you can't sell it or that you can't sell it to minors, but you Mm -hmm. can't just say it's not allowed to be inside of this state. Because of interstate commerce. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of where that conflict came up um, with the ban. It has to have safe passage. You know, I imagine it like little colorful, like hot air balloons full of hemp slowly drifting through <laughs> the space. Passing over yeah. Texas. Um, so it's, it's a tension trying to find that line between, you know, the state is allowed to regulate um, products and drugs and so on and so forth. But, mm-hmm. you know, only insofar as that field is not already filled by some kind of overriding federal legislation. Yeah. So hemp has been around for a while, but... Like 8,000 years, yeah. N- I know. And we've been using it as a society, (laughs) growing it. Um, And the reason that it's so, it it sounds to me like the reason that all of these products are emerging now is because people are pushing for like the regulation and like legality of Mm -hmm. it. So that's why all these like CBD and hemp products are relatively new on the market. What other developments are there in CBD or like non-THC stuff. So that has been fascinating to watch. Um, you know, hemp and cannabis have been around for a very long time. You know, mm-hmm. we've used the plant in its various forms like since the dawn of civilization. <laughs> but we're finally reaching the point where we have like the technology and the science to really play around with and manipulate the plant more than we ever have. I don't know how many cannabinoids 
are in cannabis, I think the current count of the ones we've identified is up to like 144. Oh. And we only ever talk about two of them, THC <laughs> and CBD. Or at least oh, we I, have. there's like a hundred different things out there like mm-hmm. that. Wow. Yeah. Is Delta 8 one of them? Am I making that up? No, Laura. Oh, you know what you're talking about. So they ran out of alphabet numbers, so they just identify it with like Greek letters now? Yeah, pretty much. No. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, we have all these cannabinoids. Some of them are more well known than others. THC is kind of known as the psychoactive cannabinoid, even though they're all psychoactive because they affect your mood and Mm -hmm. thoughts and so on and so forth. Even CBD is psychoactive. Yeah. Um, but when we say THC, traditionally, what we've meant is specifically Delta 9 THC. Okay. So even the legal definition in the Federal Controlled Substances Act defines marijuana as cannabis containing more than 0.3% Delta 9 THC, specifically. It calls it out. Oh, yeah. Oh. However, what's arisen recently is the popularity of Delta 8 THC, Delta Ooh. 9's younger sister. New kid on yeah. the block, okay. <laughs> New kid on the block. <laughs> so they were too specific in their legislation and it bit them in the back. Exactly, wow. yes. So what it is, it is a cannabinoid that's found in cannabis, you know, both marijuana and hemp, in very trace amounts. Mm-hmm. But people figured out that you can pretty easily chemically convert CBD extracted from hemp into Delta-8 THC. Oh, okay. What? So Delta-8 is an isomer of Delta-9. So it has, the molecule has all the same atoms in it. They're just arranged in a different order. Oh, it's wow. kind of like, I know, Veda He will be familiar with Graphite this. and diamonds I or was going to say Splenda. You know, when you have oh, an artificial sweetener. <laughs> Yeah, I love me some. It has has the same molecule, but it's arranged differently. It's an isomer of sugar, (laughs) Mm -hmm. sucrose. You Mm -hmm. put it on your tongue and your brain goes, ooh, that's sweet. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have any calories in it, right? Yeah. It's magic. Uh, (laughs) Which has led to Delta-8 THC being kind of misnomered as diet THC, which is hilarious. (laughs) But like terrible. It's a terrible branding because that's, you know, that's not what, yeah. Um, like, is it, di- is it like have less effects? So anecdotally, and also according to like the Nas- National Cancer Society on their website, um, it has fewer psychotropic effects. Like it still has an effect, but it's lessened uh, mm-hmm. and it's accompanied by fewer negative side effects such as paranoia um, oh, sure. or things like that. Mm-hmm. But again, we have so little I'm research. glad you backed up your anecdote with science. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of it's Googling to have... stuff. Like, if anybody ever looked at my work computer, they would just think I'm a stoner who really wants to pass drug tests. <laughs> it's your job. Yeah. Yeah. You did it for work. So then there's no regulation around Delta 8 Well, that's yet? the question, baby. Uh, when, when it first became a product, everyone was thrown into confusion. The legal reasoning of the individuals who are processing and selling Delta 8 products was that step one, hemp is federally legal. Step two, CBD extracted from hemp with less than 0.3% Delta 9 THC is federally legal. Mm -hmm. So if I convert that CBD into Delta 8 THC, which is not listed as a federally controlled substance, 
Uh-huh. It's legal. Oh. It's legal federally. It's legal in every state. Free reign. I can do what I want. And then step four is profit. Yes. That's, that's <laughs> the plan. You know, people are entrepreneurial. We have a very yeah. entrepreneurial country. Um, the FDA, womp womp, Debbie Downer, oh, man. was immediately, yeah, immediately came out and said, okay, the Controlled Substances Act includes synthetic cannabinoids. And oh, what you're doing is synthesizing a cannabinoid. Okay. And so they nipped that in the bud pretty quickly. But state by state, it really varies how the states view it legally. In Washington, um, our Controlled Substances Act specifically lists Delta-8 as a Schedule One substance. But it was listed by its chemical name, not its colloquial name, Delta-8, sorry, Delta-8 THC. Mm -hmm. Um, So people didn't even realize it. Their eyes just kind of glazed as they ran down the list of like 18 syllable words (laughs) and didn't realize initially. So yeah. our state had to put out like a policy statement explaining to people, no, this is this is not a hemp product. This is a synthetic cannabinoid. So, yeah, I read that the FDA was putting out all these reports on like adverse events, like emergency room hospital visits after taking Delta 8 and like putting out all these kind of like scary news releases. Mm-hmm. Um, is that just because... I don't know. Like, is that just like some over like regulatory oversight and lab testing right now with Delta eight is kind of de minimis and they're, it's just the government being afraid of what they don't know, or is that legit? So it's one of those things where, because it's a regulatory gray area, it's so hard to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, The process of converting CBD to Delta eight THC, um, can be done in a very safe way if it's done um, with an appropriate um, appropriate chemicals in a sterile environment. But it can also be done in a way that leads to um, really terrible contaminants, you know, carcinogens sure. uh, or, or or actual poisons being left in the end product. And so, you know, I was attending. Um, kind of a conference the other day where somebody was like, we don't want any bathtub gin situations. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, it's like, a fair oh, concern man. if you're right. like, yeah. if you're extracting it and you're lacing it with other mm-hmm. chemicals, it's not the Delta H that's dangerous, but it's whatever it's is being used to extract. Yeah. It. And it, you know, the answer often is like, okay, well maybe we need to move towards a regulatory system. Right. Yeah. right. It's just, it's so difficult because just like what we did with alcohol. Mm-hmm. So you don't go blind for moonshine. Yep. Yeah. But it's um, tricky, you know, every time state regulator is like, okay, I think we got a hold on everything that's going on. I think we got everything sorted out. All of a sudden it's like, hey, yeah. we made this new thing. <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, humans. And there's 144 where that yep. came from. Right? Humans will always find a way. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is all fascinating. I, it's such a complex area and it's, like you said, always changing all the time. Uh, what do you think the future looks like for the regulation of hemp and its continued legal status? Yeah, so for hemp, uh, right now it is a highly regulated um, crop. Um, I think that that may change, you know, as its cousin crop, marijuana, uh, its regulatory status changes. Yeah. You know, we're all waiting every single year. We're like, is this going to be the year that the federal government does something to the legal status of marijuana, either changes what it's scheduled as or removes it from the Controlled Substance Act or creates some kind of structure 
And so, you know, those two plans have been tied together since the beginning of our country in regards to legality and perception and, and how they're treated. And I think that that relationship is going to continue, whether that's accurate or not. Good to know. Um, yeah, well, thanks for joining us, Sierra. This has been fascinating and uh, it'll, it sounds like an exciting area of law that will continue to see developments in the next several years. It makes me so excited. I have been <laughs> having so much fun talking about this for an hour. I need to go t- like, take a walk and calm down. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com.